Chapter thirty two of the Girl from Hollywood by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. After Custer left her, Shannon entered the bungalow and sat for a long time before a table on which stood a framed photograph of her mother. Never before she felt the need of loving counsel so sorely as now. In almost any other emergency, she could have gone to Mrs. Pennington, but in this she dared not. She knew the pride of the Penningtons. She realized the high altar upon which they placed the purity of their women and the sacred temple of their love, and she knew that none but the pure might enter. In her heart of hearts, she knew that she had the right to stand there besides his mother or his sister. But the pity of it was that she could never prove that right, for who would believe her? Men had been hanged upon circumstantial evidence less damning than that which might be arrayed against her purity. No, if ever they should learn of her association with Wilson Crumb, they would cast her out of their lives as they would put a leper out of their home. Not even Custer's love could survive such a blow to his honor and his pride. She did not think the less of him because of that, for she was wise enough in the ways of the world to know that pride and virtue are oftentimes uncompromising, even to narrowness. Her only hope, therefore, lay in avoiding discovery by Wilson Crumb during his stay at Ganado. Her love and the weakness it had induced permitted her to accept the happiness which an unkind fate had hitherto debarred her, and to which even now her honor told her she had no right. She wished that Custer had not loved her, and that she might have continued to live the life that she learned to love, where she might be near him, and might constantly see him in the happy consociation of friendship. But with his arms about her, and his kisses on her lips, she had not had the strength to deny him, or to dissimulate the great love which had ordered her very existence for many months. In the brief moments of bliss that had followed the avowal of his love, she permitted herself to drift without thought of the future. But now that the sudden knowledge of the approaching arrival of Crumb had startled her into recollection of the past and consideration of its bearing upon the future, she realized only too poignantly that the demands of honor required that sooner or later she herself must tell Custer the whole sordid story of those hideous months at Hollywood. There was no other way. She could not mate with the man unless she could match her honor with his. There was no alternative other than to go away forever. It was midnight before she arose and went to her room. She went deliberately to a drawer which she had kept locked and, finding the key, she opened it. From it she took the little black case, and turning back the cover, she revealed the files, the needles, and the tiny syringe that had played so sinister a part in her past. What she was doing tonight she had done so often in the past year that it was almost assumed the proportions of a right. It had been her wont to parade her tempters before her, that she might have the satisfaction of deriding them, and proving the strength of the new will that her love for Custer Pennington had been so potent a factor in developing. Tonight she went a little further. She took a bit of cotton, and, placing it in the bowl of the spoon, she dissolved some of the white powder with the aid of a lighted match held beneath the spoon. Then she drew the liquid into the syringe. Her nerves were overwrought and unstrung from the stress of the conflicting emotions that had endured that evening, and the risk she took was greater than she guessed. And yet, as she looked at the syringe, and realized that its contents held surcease of sorrow, that it held quiet and rest and peace, she felt only repugnance toward it. Not even remotely did she consider the possibility of resorting again to the false happiness of morphine. She knew now that she was freer from its temptations than one who had never used it, but she felt that after tonight, with the avowal of Pennington's love still in her ears, she must no longer keep in her possession a thing so diametrically opposed to the cleanliness of his life and his character. For months she had retained it as part of a system that she had conceived for ridding herself of its power. Without it, she might never have known whether she could withstand the temptations of its presence. But now she had finished with it. She needed it no longer. With almost fanatical savagery, she destroyed it, crushing the glass files and the syringe beneath her heel, 
and tearing the little case to shreds. Then, gathering up the fragments, she carried them to the fireplace in the living room and burned them. On the following day, the horses and several loads of properties from the KKS studio arrived at Ganado, and the men who accompanied them pitched their camp well up in Jackknife Canyon. Ava was very much excited and spent much of her time on horseback, watching their preparations. She tried to get Shannon to accompany her, but the latter found various excuses to remain away, being fearful that even though Crumb had not yet arrived, there might be other employees of the studio who would recognize her. Crumb and the rest of the company came in in the afternoon, although they had not been expected until the following day. Ava, who had made Custer ride up again with her in the afternoon, recalled to the acting director the occasion upon which she had met him, and they had danced together some year and a half before. As soon as he met her, Crumb was struck by her beauty, youth, and freshness. He saw in her a possible means of relieving the tedium of the several weeks' enforced absence from Hollywood, though in the big brother he realized a possible obstacle, unless he were able to carry on his proposed gallantries clandestinely. In the course of conversation, he took occasion to remark that Ava ought to photograph well. I'll let them take a hundred feet of you, he said, some day when you're up here while you're working. We might discover an unsung Pickford up here among the hills. She will remain unsung then, said Custer curtly. My sister has no desire to go into pictures. How do you know I haven't? asked Ava. After Grace? he asked significantly. She turned to Crumb. I'm afraid I wouldn't make much of an actress, she said but it would be perfectly radiant to see myself in pictures, just once. Good, he replied. We'll get you all right some day that you're up here. I promised your brother that I wouldn't try to persuade you into pictures. I hope not, said Custer. As he and Ava rode back toward the house, he turned to the girl. I don't like that fellow Crumb, he said. Why, she asked. It's hard to say. He just rubs me the wrong way. But I bet almost anything that he's a cad. Oh, I think he's perfectly divine, said Ava with her usual enthusiasm. Custer grunted. The trouble with you, announced Ava, is that you're jealous of him because he's an actor. That's just like you men. Custer laughed. Maybe you're right, he said, but I don't like him, and I hope you'll never go up there alone. Well, I'm going to see them take pictures, replied the girl. If I can't get anyone to go with me, I'm going alone. I don't like the way he looked at you, Ava. You're perfectly silly. He didn't look at me any differently than any other man does. I don't know about that. I haven't the same keen desire to punch the head of every man I see looking at you as I had in this case. Oh, you're prejudiced. I bet anything is just perfectly lovely. The next morning, finding no one with the leisure or inclination to ride with her, Eva rode up again to the camp. They had already commenced shooting. Although Crumb was busy, he courteously took the time to explain the scene on which they were working, and many of the technical details of picture-making. He had a man hold her horse while she came and squinted through the finder. In fact, he spent so much time with her that he materially delayed the work of the morning. At the same time, the infatuation that had given its birth on the preceding day grew to greater proportions in his diseased mind. He asked her to stay and lunch with them. When she insisted that she must return home, he begged her to come again in the afternoon. Although she would have been glad to do so, for she found the work that they were doing novel and interesting, she declined his invitation, as she already had made arrangements for the afternoon. He followed her to her horse and walked beside her down the road a short distance from the others. If you can't come down this afternoon, he said, possibly you can come up this evening. We're going to take some night pictures. I hadn't intended inviting anyone because the work is going to be rather difficult and dangerous, but an audience might distract the attention of the actors. If you think you can get away alone, I should be very glad to have you come up for a few minutes about nine o'clock. We shall be working in the same place. Don't forget, he repeated as she started to ride away, that for this particular scene I really ought not to have any audience at all. But if you come, please don't tell anyone else about it. 
I'll come, she said. It's awfully good of you to ask me, and I won't tell a soul. Crumb smiled as he turned back to his waiting company. Brought up in the atmosphere that has surrounded her since birth, unacquainted with any but honorable men, and believing as she did that all men are the chivalrous protectors of all women, Ava did not suspect the guile that lay behind the director's courteous manner and fair words. She looked upon the coming nocturnal visit to the scene of their work as nothing more than a harmless adventure. Nor was there, from her experience, any cause for apprehension, since the company comprised some forty or fifty men and women who, like anyone else, would protect her from any harm that lay in their power to avert. Her conscience did not trouble her in the least, although she regretted that she did not share her good fortune with the other members of her family, and deplored the necessity of leaving the house surreptitiously, like a thief in the night. Such things did not appeal to Pennington's standards, but Ava satisfied these qualms by promising herself that she would tell them all about it at breakfast the next morning. After lunch that day, Custer went to his room, and, throwing himself on his bed with a book, with the intention of reading for half an hour, fell asleep. Shortly afterward, Shannon Burke, feeling that there would be no danger of meeting any of the KKS people at the Pennington house, rode up on the senator to keep her appointment with Ava. As she tied her horse upon the north side of the house, Wilson Crumb stopped his car opposite the patio at the south drive. He had come up to see Colonel Pennington for the purpose of arranging for the use of a number of Ganado Herefords in a scene the following day. Not finding Ava in the family sitting room, Shannon passed through the house and out into the patio, just as Wilson Crumb mounted the two steps to the arcade. Before either realized the presence of the other, they were face to face, scarce a yard apart. Shannon went deathly white as she recognized the man beneath his makeup, while Crumb stood speechless for a moment. My God, Gaza, you! He presently managed to exclaim, What are you doing here? Thank God I have found you at last. Don't, she begged. Please don't speak to me. I am living a decent life here. He laughed in a disagreeable manner. Decent, he scoffed. Where are you getting the snow? Who's putting up for it? I don't use it anymore, she said. The hell you don't. You can't put that over on me. Some other guy is furnishing it. I know you. You can't get along two hours without it. I'm not going to stand for this. There isn't any guy going to steal my girl. Hush, Wilson, she cautioned. For God's sake, keep still. Someone might hear you. I don't give a damn who hears me. I'm here to tell the world that no one is going to take my girl away from me. I found you, and you're going back with me. Do you understand? She came very close to him, her eyes blazing wrathfully. I'm not going back with you, Wilson Crumb, she said. If you tell, or if you ever threaten me again in any way, I'll kill you. I managed to escape you, and I found happiness at last, and no one shall take it away from me. What about my happiness? You lived with me two years. I love you, and, by God, I'm going to have you, if I have to. A door slammed behind them, and they both turned to see Custer Pennington standing in the arcade outside his door, looking at them. I beg your pardon, he said, his voice chilling. Did I interrupt? This man is looking for someone, Custer, said Shannon, and turned to re-enter the house. Confronted by a man, Crumb's bravado had vanished. Intuitively, he guessed that he had been looking at the man who had stolen Gaza from him. But he was a very big young man with broad shoulders and muscles that his flannel shirt and riding breeches did not conceal. Crumb decided that if he was going to have trouble with this man, it would be safer to commence hostilities at a time when the other was not looking. Yes, he said, I was looking for your father, Mr. Pennington. Father is not here. He has driven over to the village. What do you want? I wanted to see if I can arrange for the use of some of your Herefords tomorrow morning. Pennington was leading the way toward Crumb's car. You can find out about that, he said, or anything else you may wish to know, from the assistant foreman, whom you'll usually find up at the other end, around the cabin. If he is in doubt about anything, he will consult with us personally, so that it will not be necessary, Mr. Crumb, for you to go to the trouble of coming to this house again. 
Custer's voice was level and low. It carried no suggestion of anger, yet there was that about it which convinced Crum that he was fortunate in not having been kicked off the hill physically rather than verbally, for kicked off he had been, and advised to stay off into the bargain. He wondered how much Pennington had overheard of his conversation with Gaza. Shannon Burke, crouching in a big chair in the sitting room, was wondering the same thing. As a matter of fact, Custer had overheard practically all the conversation. The noise of Crumb's car had awakened him, but almost immediately he had fallen into a doze, through which the spoken words impinged upon his consciousness without any actual, immediate realization of their meaning, of the identity of the speakers. The moment that he had become fully awake and found that he was listening to a conversation not intended for his ears, he had risen and gone into the patio. When finally he came to the sitting room where Shannon was, he made no mention of the occurrence except to say that the visitor had wanted to see his father. It did not seem possible to Shannon that he could have failed to overhear at least a part of their conversation, for they were standing not more than a couple yards from the open window of the bedroom, and there was no other sound breaking the stillness of the August noon. She was sure that he had heard, yet his manner indicated that he had not. She waited a moment to see if he would be the first to broach the subject, but he did not. She determined to tell him then and there all that she had to tell, freeing her soul and her conscience of their burden, whatever the cost may be. She rose and came to where he was standing, and, placing a hand upon his arm, looked up into his eyes. "'Custer,' she said, "'I have something to tell you. I ought to have told you before, but I have been afraid. Since last night there is no alternative but to tell you.' "'You do not have to tell me anything you do not want to tell me,' he said. "'My confidence in you is implicit. I cannot both love and distrust at the same time.' "'I must tell you,' she said. "'I only hope—' Where in the world have you been, Shannon? cried Ava, breaking suddenly into the sitting room. I have been away down to your place looking for you. I thought you were going to play golf with me this afternoon. That's what I came up for, said Shannon, turning toward her. Well, come on, then. We'll have to hurry if we're going to play eighteen holes this afternoon. Custer Pennington went to his room again after the girls had driven off in the direction of the country club. He wondered what it had been that Shannon wished to tell him. Round and round in his mind rang the words of Wilson Crumb. You live with me two years. You live with me two years. You live with me two years. She had been going to explain that, he was sure, but she did not have to explain it. The girl that he loved could have done no wrong. He trusted her. He was sure of her. But what place had that soft-faced cad had in her life? It was unthinkable that she had ever known him, much less that they had been upon intimate terms. Custer went to his closet and rummaged around for a bottle. It had been more than two weeks since he had taken a drink. The return to his old intimacy with Shannon, and the frequency with which he now saw her had again weaned him from his habit. But today he felt a need of a drink, of a big drink, stiff and neat. He swallowed the raw liquor as if it had been so much water. He wished now that he had punched Crumb's head when he had the chance. The cur! He had spoken to Shannon as if she were some common woman of the streets. Shannon Burke. Custer's Shannon. Feeling no reaction to the first drink, he took another. I'd like to get my fingers on his throat, he thought. Before I choke the life out of him, I'd drag him up here and make him kiss the ground at her feet. But no, he could not do that. Others would see it, and there would have to be explanations. And how could he explain it without casting reflections on Shannon? For hours he sat there in his room, nursing his anger, his jealousy, and his grief. And all the time he drank and drank again. He went to his closet, got his belt and holster, and from his dressing drawer took a big, ugly-looking forty-five a Colt's automatic. For a moment he stood holding it in his hand, looking at it. Almost caressingly he handled it, and then he slipped it into the holster at his hip, put on his hat, and started for the door. End of chapter 32